All right, let's get to it, okay? Uh, pages 10 and 11 in your, in your uh, packet is where we're going to be tonight. As we sort of open the book on 2 Timothy chapter 1. Okay, I want to tell you about something that happened to me 40 years ago. And I still remember, don't whistle, okay. <laughs> but I still remember it like it was yesterday. It happened toward the end of my junior year at Lafayette, and that was in the spring of 1983. Thank you. <laughs> so what had happened is that the senior leaders in the, the Christian Fellowship had invited some of us juniors uh, to dinner at a place called Campus Pizza. My guess is most campuses have a place like that. And once we arrived, we, we got settled in, the pizza was ordered, but it soon became very, very clear that eating pizza was not the main event of the evening. Because just after the food was served, the president of the fellowship, remember him clearly, a, a guy named Jim, a senior named Jim, he stood up, he took a note card, I still have it, out of his pocket, and he said this. He said, before I pray for the meal, I want to say something on behalf of us seniors to you juniors. And then he read this from the note card. It's your turn. The fellowship will soon be under your watch and your care. We've carried the ball as far as we can, and we're about to hand it off. Future generations of Lafayetteers will either thank you for your faithfulness or try to recover from your unfaithfulness. We believe that God can use you and he will use you. But we want you to know it's your turn now. I still remember Jim folded the card, put it back in his pocket, sat down, and the seniors all began to eat. Now, as you can imagine, us juniors were no longer thinking about pizza. We had far more pressing things in our mind because it had been made clear to us the baton had just been handed off. We had been entrusted with the future and with the gospel. Listen, friends, this week we'll be studying the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy. And, and just to be clear, the setting was different. So Paul was not standing in, in a pizzeria. But the occasion was really very much the same. Now let me set it for you. So at this point of the writing, Paul was in a damp, dark prison cell in Rome. So he's no longer under house arrest because everything had escalated by this point. This time he was in prison and he was awaiting his imminent execution. Now, Paul had labored long and hard and he had suffered much for the gospel over the course of about 30 years. And by the time of the writing of this letter, it was clear that he had carried the baton of faithful gospel ministry as far as he could, which is why at the end of this letter, which we'll get to on Friday, he wrote this, the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have now finished the race. 
And now it was time to hand it all off to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Now, you have to understand something about Timothy. At this point, this young man felt increasingly weary and very, very inadequate. He had served as the pastor of the Ephesian church for about five years, and up until this point, things had not gone well. False teachers had traveled to Ephesus and had mounted a vicious, vicious campaign of slander and heresy. Even some in the church had turned against Timothy. We'll hear more about that tomorrow morning. And in response to all of that, Timothy was tempted to give in and to give up. To slow down, maybe even stop running, even though he wasn't even halfway around the track at this point. And so what Paul does from this prison cell is he writes him a letter. You know, it's been said that last words are lasting words. And friends, these are some of Paul's last words that we have. And and as with most last words, what we're going to read tonight and and all this week, you're going to see there's there's no small talk. There's no wasted words. Everything is purposeful. It is pointed. it, It is focused. In a sense, what's happening in this letter is this. Paul, from his prison cell, is standing up. He's taking a divinely inspired note card out of his pocket. And he is issuing a call to arms for his spiritual son. And you know what the best part of it is? Like we get to listen in. Like we get to read along. Like what a privilege that we have this thing. I can't wait. So let me read it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly, In my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Friends, this is God's word. Notice on your outline, 
Three simple points right there. Remember, respond, rejoice. Remember, respond, rejoice. Let's hit remember. Now I want you to notice something. Notice as this letter begins that there's no panic on the part of Paul. That though he's in prison, there's no words of despair, there's no regret, there's no self-pity from the apostle. At this point, Paul's vision is crystal clear. He knows what, it is, what is at stake, and he knows exactly what Timothy needs to hear. Now again, remember the context. Paul is gonna be soon departing. Timothy is quickly retreating. And people are sadly turning. Let me ask you, how would you begin a letter like this? What, what would you say? Now, amazingly enough, what filled Paul's mind at this moment was memories. Did you see that in our passage? Look at the repetition. Look at verse 3. I remember. Verse 4. I remember. Verse 5. I am reminded. And at verse six, I remind you. Paul spends the first few verses of this letter bringing to Timothy's attention some key memories. And friends, it's through those memories that Paul is gonna press upon Timothy three realities, three simple powerful truths that he needs to remember as he faces what lies ahead. You see, Paul knew this, that if Timothy knew those three things and remembered those three things, then most everything else would begin to fall into place. What are they? I made it simple. They're right on your outline, right on your outline. Here's the first one. You're not alone. You're not alone. Look at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. So, as Paul looks back on his spiritual genealogy, his family tree, he's filled with gratitude. That's why he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. So even though he's sitting in prison, Paul didn't see his life through the lens of a, of a jail cell but he saw it as part of this unfolding drama that began long before he was even on the scene. And then as he reaches back into his family tree, Paul reminds Timothy, you're part of that unfolding drama as well. Again, look what he, look what he says in verse two. To Timothy, my beloved child. So Timothy's part of this great heritage as well. And then Paul assures Timothy with those precious words I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. So picture Timothy reading this. You know what the effect of that is on this young man? Timothy, you're not alone. You're not alone. See, Paul knew that for the challenges that were before him, Timothy needed more than what the present could give him, so he reaches back into the past a little bit. And Paul was clear. The race that he had run and was finishing had been going on for centuries. Paul had played his part. Now Timothy has to play his part as well. That's why I put uh, Hebrews 12.1 at the top of your outline. You see it right there? 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And again, friends, like what an encouragement for Timothy. You're not alone. Though it may have looked and felt to Timothy like he was surrounded by enemies, Paul assures him, no, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those who have served God faithfully in past generations. And not only that, even though Paul was bound in prison, he was praying for Timothy constantly. I don't know if this is your reaction, but don't you love it? When in the middle of a bad season or a time of weariness or discouragement, someone just texts you out of the blue. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. Friends, this is a first century text. (laughs) Timothy, you're not alone. I've been there. It's worth it. I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. You're not alone. Well, not only was he not alone, but the second thing he emphasizes is you are loved. You're loved. Look at verse (coughs) 4. Excuse me. Verse 4, it says this. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Now, we're, we're not clear what tears Paul is remembering here. I was reading one guy who wrote this. Verse 4 seems to recollect an especially poignant moment the two had shared that was marked by tears. Whether it was an occasion of intense joy or deep sorrow, we don't know. But what we do know is they bonded all the more deeply on account of it. Now, look at the intensity. Look at verse 4. Look at the intensity of Paul's language here. I long, I long to see you. Like, what a public unbelievably warm expression of affection. And then Paul even suggests that his joy was somehow dependent on him seeing Timothy. That I may be filled with joy. He would write later in in chapter four, please do your best to come to me soon. Paul was just unembarrassed. He was unrestrained in communicating his affection for Timothy. He was unconcerned that other people might misunderstand him or misinterpret him. And so, as Timothy faced his fears, as well as the task that was before him, do you see what's happening? Paul, the great apostle Paul, wanted him to know something basic and powerful, and it's this, Timothy You are loved. As I sit in prison, Timothy, you know what I'm longing for? It isn't my release. It isn't the easing of my situation. I'm not not longing for more years to be added to my life. You know what I'm longing for, Timothy? I long to see you. Paul would write in another letter, you are my glory and my joy. I tell you, when when a young man or a woman hears that from from a mother or father or a spiritual mother or father, let me tell you, it puts wind in the sails, doesn't it? Timothy, you're not alone. Timothy, you are so loved. 
Then the third thing, your faith is real. Your faith is real. Look at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Now I am sure dwells in you as well. So if if you remember in verse 3, Paul reached back into his spiritual genealogy. Here he reaches back into Timothy's genealogy a little bit. And notice the point he's making. Timothy, your faith is real. It's real. I saw it. I heard it. And I saw it in your grandmother's words in life. I heard it and I saw it in mom's words in life. And I have heard it and I've seen it in your life as well. And again, if you can, I know we're sitting in doubly gap, but it's 2023. But imagine the scene. So here's Paul. He's languishing in prison. He is awaiting execution after enduring decades of abuse and hardship for the gospel. And Timothy is feeling weary and just discouraged. And he's tempted to give up his part in the work of the gospel. I wonder if Timothy was wondering if he even had faith anymore. Have you ever wondered that? In times of disappointment and doubt. And then Paul writes, I have no doubts. Listen, my son, I have no doubts. Your faith is real. It is sincere. I am convinced that real faith dwells in you. You know, when a peer says that to you, it's nice. It's great. But when your hero, your mentor, the one who has run the race hard and long and had been faithful through thick and thin, when he says that to you, let me tell you, it ain't just nice. It is transformational. What an encouragement to this young man. Timothy, you're not alone. Timothy, you are loved. Timothy, your faith is real. Friends, please don't miss the impact of these verses. They are deep and rich and strong. And before Paul fills Timothy's minds with warnings and instructions, as he will do throughout the letter, do you notice what he does? Is he ministers to his heart. Now with all of that in place, Paul then gives his first instruction to Timothy in verse 6. And that's your, that's your second point, respond. Look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So see the connection there, okay? So Timothy, for this reason, because you are not alone, because you are loved, because your faith is real, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Now notice what Paul does. Paul reminds Timothy that he had been set apart for gospel ministry. 
this happened earlier in Timothy's life. In fact, it's recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I have it right there for you under the 2 Timothy passage. Look at what it says. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, this happened before the church. As the elders, including Paul, laid their hands on Timothy and he was set apart for the work of the gospel. Paul is calling that to Timothy's mind. And in fact, this whole process is still done in many churches today, including my own. A man being set apart for pastoral ministry is asked a series of questions and then after answering them in the affirmative, he then kneels before the congregation and the elders all come and lay their hands on him and pray for him and he is commissioned to the Lord's service. That happened to me 22 years ago. I, during that process, was asked eight questions. Here, here are the last three that I was asked. And you know what? <laughs> I often wonder if these were at all similar to the questions that Timothy was asked centuries ago. I was asked this, do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the peace, purity, and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise against you on that account? If so, say, I do. I said, I do. Do you promise to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all of your duties as a Christian and minister of the gospel, whether personal or relational, private or public, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary godliness before the world and the flock of which God shall make you overseer? If so, say, I do. I do. Do you now promise that, relying upon God for strength, you will discharge the duties of a pastor to the honor and the glory of God? If so, say, I do. I do. What's happening in verse 6 is Paul is reminding Timothy of that most solemn occasion. He reminded Timothy of his call. He reminded Timothy that his call was a gift from God. It wasn't a curse or a burden or a mistake, but it was a gift. And now, even though things have been harder, discouraging, even though Timothy was tempted to fade, he really just had one task before him. He had to Fan into flame those fading embers. That's what he had to do. You think about it. What a great image that is, isn't it? Fan into flame. In other words, the, the, the embers are still there. 
Like there's, there's still some heart, a little bit of heat, there's still some glow, some hope amidst that pile of wood. And how do you fan it into flame? You know how to do this, right? You just give it some oxygen, but whatever you do, you don't give up and walk away. The seeds of a great flame are still there. So, whereas in verses 3 to 5, Paul encouraged Timothy, here he's pressing him. He wants him to know that God did not call him into the work of the gospel so that he could retreat or fade or resign in fear. That's not the spirit that he received. That's why he says this in verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see, not only was Timothy raised by a godly mom and a godly grandma, not only was he discipled by the apostle Paul, not only was he set apart by the church, but he was now indwelt by the spirit of God. And that spirit was given so that Timothy could press forward in power and love and self-control. So Timothy no longer had a grandma or a mom, and soon he would not have Paul. But he had the spirit of God in him. And that spirit was not a spirit of fear. That spirit was straining to be fanned into the flames of power and love and self-control. And so what Paul does, he says, Timothy, live in line with who indwells you. Timothy, you've been set apart. You've been gifted by God and indwelt by his spirit. Now live according with that. Don't live according to your fears and your failures. You're different now. Timothy, you're not alone. Timothy, you're loved. Timothy, your faith is real. You've been set apart. The spirit of God is in you now. Fan those flames into a roaring flame. Fan them. Now, in the rest of the letter, what's going to happen is this. And we're going to start tomorrow morning looking at it in detail. Paul is going to tell Timothy exactly how to do that. How do I fan these embers into a flame? And we'll start with that tomorrow. But let's look at our last point before we get there. How should we respond? How should we respond? I just have one word. I'll say more than this one word, but here's the one word on your outline. Rejoice. Rejoice. How should we respond? Like, in other words, how do Paul's words to Timothy centuries ago, what do they do with us? How do they impact us? Let me give you a clue about the rest of the week. In each message this week from 2 Timothy, I've asked each of the speakers throughout the talk to answer two questions. Here they are. How does this passage encourage us in gospel ministry. Second, how does this passage equip us for gospel ministry? How does it equip us in? How does it, sorry, how does it encourage us in? How does it equip us for? And tonight, I just want to take a few moments. Let's just start to answer them. How does this passage encourage us in gospel ministry? It encourages us by reminding us of three realities. Listen, friends, in which you and I can rest 
and rejoice no matter the season of life or ministry that we are in. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian here tonight, if you're resting on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you must know what Paul wanted Timothy to know. You are not alone. You are loved. And your faith is real. Brother and sister in Christ, you are not alone. God himself is with you by his spirit and he will never leave you or forsake you. And if that weren't enough, you're, you're part of a great heritage, a great spiritual genealogy, most of whom you will only ever meet and greet in glory. How many of you are, have graduated your seniors? You either graduated or graduating soon. Seniors, good. Raise your hand. Yeah, great. Thank you. Your time on campus is over. The baton has been handed off. And I, on behalf of our staff team, I want to say to those of you who have been thank, faithful, I want to thank you for running the race so very well. And as you graduate, please realize you're not alone. Run the race set out before you. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. To the rest of you, your time is now. Listen, I've been coming to Dublin Gap every year since 1985, with the unfortunate exception of seasons of COVID. I have seen countless generations of students fill these seats and those bunk beds, those squeaky little bunk beds, and they are the same ones from 1985. <laughs> And I've seen countless generations rock on those porch chairs. And listen, by faith, they are surrounding you tonight. And they are cheering you on. So fan it into flame. In the midst of the work of the gospel on campus, please don't forget you are not alone. Do your part in the short time on campus God has given you. Future generations will rise up and they will call you blessed. Not only you're not alone, but you are loved. First and foremost, you are loved by God himself. And he demonstrated that love for you in the most dramatic, spectacular way possible. Jesus Christ died for you. And if that weren't enough, you are loved by other people. The DM staff team that is here this week, we want you to know we love you. Like, that's why we're here. It's not like we needed a, a week off at Dumbling Gap to close out the year, honestly. <laughs> like, if you weren't here, I'd be home doing my thing. But we love you. And that's why you're here. That's why we're here. So in the midst of running the race of gospel ministry, don't forget you're loved. And last thing is, your, your faith is real. 
Now, I know it may not feel like it very often. I've been there. You may often feel as if your faith <laughs> is more of a dying ember than a roaring flame. But in the midst of the ups and downs of gospel ministry, don't, don't forget an ember can still be fanned into flame. Your faith is real. God has set you apart for his purposes and you will find your joy ultimately no other place than in honoring and serving him. So this week, may I appeal to you, fan those embers into a flame. Certainly play volleyball and have a great time on Lake Henrietta and do the minute to win it. Okay, right? But lean into our sessions. Glean all you can from the tracks and the times of worship and the breakouts. Like make the most of this week at Focus. So listen, rejoice. You are not alone. You are loved. And your faith is real. But I, I want to end by saying something that's even deeper and more transformational. And it's this. That there, there's actually a deeper rejoicing from this passage when we consider that second question that we're going to answer this week, which was, how does this passage equip us for gospel ministry? In other words, how does this passage not only give us courage, but how does it equip people like us who, let's be honest, are most often half-hearted and are very tempted to give in to discouragement and fear who, honestly, are just like Timothy, aren't we? We often feel weary and distracted. We want to give in. We want to give up. How does this passage equip people like us? Simply this. It points us beyond ourselves to the one who ran the race for us. So, please, let's not miss Jesus in these verses. I haven't mentioned him yet, but he's back, okay? So, he's mentioned three times at the beginning of the letter. Look at verse 1. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Hello. Verse 1. The promise of life is in Christ Jesus. There he is again. Verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace comes from Christ Jesus. So, how does Jesus deepen our joy? How does the gospel equip us? It reminds us of this. That all the encouragement that we now have once belonged to Jesus. But what he did is he gave it all up so that we could have it forever. In other words, his flame died so that ours could burn bright. Think about it. Jesus was part of the eternal triune God. Like talk about never being alone. <laughs> But he left home. He came down from heaven to be our savior and our substitute. And at the moment of his greatest need, he was forsaken by God his father. Jesus experienced the greatest depths of loneliness so that you and I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will never, ever be alone. Not only that, Jesus was the one who was most loved by God the Father. In fact, when he was set apart for ministry at his baptism, 
Maybe you remember the account from the Gospels. A voice from heaven booms, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And three years later, on the cross, as Jesus took our place and he suffered for our sins, he gave up all of that affection so that, you know what? You and I could have it. Jesus was treated as being completely unloved so that you and I can know that we are always loved by God. And then talk about real faith. Jesus was the definition of it. He never sinned. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He never, never gave up or gave in. But on the cross, he was treated as if he had no faith at all. He became sin for us so that you and I might be clothed with the righteousness of God. Like his death for you secured your faith. And he who began that good work in you, he promises he is going to bring it to completion. It's a done deal. See, friends, all that Timothy had, all that we have, has been won for us and has been secured for us by Jesus. It can never be taken away. So once you understand that, you know what the response is? Like fan into flame. Fan into flame the gift of God. Like just go for it. What do you got to lose? Now if you're here this week and and you're not a Christian and and you're going to hear this repeated during the week, don't let the repetition dull you to the meaning behind it. We are so glad you're here. So glad you're here. But if you're not a Christian, what I'm saying doesn't apply to you. Not yet. But the gospel is an offer of hope to you that can rescue you from all of your weariness and discouragement that weighs you down, but you have nothing to do from it other than distract yourself from it or blame others for it. So come to Jesus Christ this week. Talk to me. Talk to one of our staff. We would love to introduce you to the one who has radically transformed our lives. But if you are a Christian... Please remember, as we start, because of Jesus, you are never alone. Because of Jesus, you are always loved. Because of Jesus, your faith is most real. So let's run with endurance. The race worked out for us. After every talk this week, we're going to have a time of just silence. You know, if you've been here before, it's hard to be silent at focus. (laughs) So we're just going to have just a couple moments of silence. You can just read over the passage, reflect, pray, whatever you want. Then I'll close this in prayer in a few moments, okay?
Or Father, most of us in this room, if you were honest, would say we are light years away from the Apostle Paul and amazingly close to Timothy at this point. But thank you that the word of the gospel comes and no matter our, our, our condition or our season, that because of Christ, we're not alone, we are loved, and our faith is real. So in the reality of that, Father, would you enable us wherever we are to fan whatever you have given us into flame this week. It's astounding that you would choose people such as us to be your own, that you would entrust us with the gospel. Lord, help us by the power of your spirit to run even this week with endurance that race marked out for us. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.